Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. The question this time is, what are some key steps for effective assessment interviews? I guess a preliminary question to start off with is, should you include interviews in your assessment project? I know that some organizations and some processes include going through a benchmarking process that might also include assessing any survey data that you have for your employee base, along with resource data or other data points that can be benchmarked against similar peer organizations, and that those processes don't necessarily include an interview component. I think that's fine, and I, depending on what your expectations are and what you hope the end result will be. I find that with most organizations that are doing a comprehensive program assessment or what's often sometimes called a compliance risk assessment, although there's varying questions about what's a risk assessment versus a regular assessment, and I hope to do a episode about that in the future. But for the purposes today, let's just include those all together. To a great extent, I think if you have a program where you're attempting to get a baseline, oftentimes organizations end up doing a an assessment or benchmarking exercise that doesn't include interviews and maybe also doesn't include a deep dive into the data and the documentation of the program because there are time constraints on when you're hoping to get those results. And I don't think there's any right answer here as to whether you include interviews or don't include interviews in a assessment or review process. It's just as long as everyone involved in the process, both in the, from the planning stage and then ultimately when you deliver it to the board of directors or the audit committee of the board of directors or the C-suite or wherever the report is going to be delivered, that there's an understanding of what's included and what's not. And as long as that's clear, I think that you certainly can have a successful benchmarking project that doesn't include interviews. I kind of look at this dichotomy, whether you have a benchmarking process with interviews or not interviews, similar to the process of determining whether you want to do live training versus online training. I think the answer ultimately is a successful program does both. So if you are doing a benchmarking exercise or a a review or assessment exercise now that doesn't include interviews, I would assume that some date in the future when you repeat that process or do a different process that you would include it. I think reviewing data, reviewing survey information is important, but you want the give and take of the interview process. You discover things during the interview process that you wouldn't uh, discover just looking at survey data or other available streams of information that you might be looking at for the assessment. So if you have decided that your assessment project is going to include interviews, I think that the general perception of assessment or program review interviews is that they fall in line with the process that you would use if you were conducting an internal investigation. I think that's true with some aspects, but there are some other things to consider. And some of them are similar to what you would uh, do with a internal investigation. For instance, uh, when you're conducting an internal investigation, you don't conduct the interviews first. You review the available data and documentation and uh, try to nail down some facts before you conduct the interviews. 
The difference between the process when you're undertaking it for the purposes of an internal investigation and for the purposes of an assessment is that the clock is ticking much differently oftentimes during the uh, internal investigation process versus the assessment process. So if you conducted interviews in the past and have a system set up for that purpose that's primarily for conducting swift and decisive internal investigation results, you may want to take a closer look at that, particularly timeline and preparation time and the amount, uh, sort of the, uh, the universe of materials, data, and documents that you review and expand it some when you're doing the assessment project versus what you would do with the internal investigation interview process. Now, that's not to say that you want to take all the time in the world necessarily because you still have a schedule and a timeline and a finite amount of resources to conduct this process for sure. But the clock is not ticking quite the same as it would be when you are conducting an internal investigation. So take a look at how you want that process to unfold and maybe you want to build some more time in there up front to do more digging, more research before you finally conduct the interviews. Because the, the one thing that I find happens whenever I conduct one of these assessment projects is the first, when the first step is going through the data and the documentation, that informs what your interview list is going to look like. When you have uh, an internal investigation, there's been an explosion, uh, and, and the people that are in the blast radius end up being on the list of those that you're going to interview. So the uh, interview list is, is determined in a much different way during the internal investigation process than it would be for the assessment project. Uh, finding the appropriate list of interview subjects in an assessment is a much more deliberative process, I would say, than in an in, in investigation. Oftentimes in an investigation, you conduct an interview and you get five more names. And that's certainly true uh, in an assessment project as well. You'll, you'll come across things during the assessment process, including the interviews, that will add a few more names to the list of people that you want to talk to about what's going on in the organization. But to a great extent, the list is composed in a different way during the assessment project versus the investigation process. Another piece of the selection process that's very different than a discrete investigation is figuring out who is in the sample. When you're conducting a program assessment, there are sort of the usual suspects that are going to be on the list. You're going to have audit, legal, compliance department, obviously, HR, senior management, an obvious one that is sometimes overlooked but is integral to having a, a complete understanding of the process is the chair of the audit committee of the board of directors or whomever is uh, responsible ultimately for the program in your organization. If you have a board that uh, has a separate uh, risk committee and the risk committee is responsible or the audit committee, which is generally where it is housed, you need to talk to a member of that uh, subcommittee or the chair of that committee as part of your interview process. You have to close the loop on the important role that the board of directors has in the oversight of a program. Also, you want to include operational personnel, operational management at least, that are spread throughout the organization. We know, we understand that while tone from the top was the directive 10 years ago, tone throughout the organization or tone from the middle is what we expect when we talk about a operating effective compliance program these days. And to accurately measure that during the interview process, you need to have uh, some sample from that. 
You need to talk to, again, at least managers. Uh, you can include some lower operational personnel in that sample as well, but at least management from a varied number of operations throughout the organization. And how you select those managers is, I think, as important as anything in this process. I think you want to be as independent in your selection of people to speak with as possible. It may be that in your position within the organization, if you're the compliance officer and you're conducting this or assisting with uh, an outside party conducting this, you may have some people in mind already that you've had some contact with in the past. But I would encourage you to kind of go outside the normal group of individuals or managers that you know that are involved in the process that you can rely on and try to find uh, some folks that maybe perhaps you haven't had contact with before or parts of the organization, new, new, new parts of the organization, particularly if there's been acquisitions that uh, you haven't had a lot of contact with and talk to some of those folks as well so that you can get their opinions about the messaging training, communication, monitoring, and auditing all the pieces of the puzzle from different operational perspectives throughout the organization. It's going to be particularly illuminating part of the process, and it can give you a great amount of feedback. And in, in trying to select those folks, I would also not only rely, again, upon the usual suspects, HR, legal, audit, the, the, the departments that you know have a hand in, broadly speaking, with compliance and ethics in the organization. But talk to some of the business leaders. Get a wide variety of opinion about who might be a good candidate to talk to about this. And the last piece, too, is use the documentation that you've reviewed to your advantage in helping make these selections. I find myself uh, a lot of times, particularly since I'm new to an organization when I come in as an outsider, relying on sort of traditional documents like uh, organizational charts and kind of just peering down through, you know, particularly with organizations that have detailed organization charts, peering down through the pyramid and finding different parts of the operation and asking questions about it, saying, well, what exactly is this part of the operation and who's there and how is it set up and what are the dynamics there and try to get a good read on whether that might be worthwhile to uh, bring somebody in to speak to on the important topics that you're reviewing in your assessment review. The last thing I would mention in this sort of broad review of the interview process during an assessment is laying the proper groundwork and setting the right tone for the interviews before they happen. When you're conducting an internal investigation, it's probably a fait accompli that uh, those involved in the process know what's going on and what it's all about. And they're either going to be very forthcoming uh, maybe excessively forthcoming, depending on their perspective, or they're not going to be very forthcoming or they're going to be hiding something. And, and it's a process that's uh, probably very well known to many of you because, again, compliance officers spend a lot of time along with HR professionals conducting these sorts of interviews, and they get used to that process. Again, either being talking to people who are really interested in telling their story and been waiting to tell their story, and, and it just kind of all flows out like a river, or people who are not so interested in, in telling you certain aspects of what happened in a particular event. And also these interviews are very sort of laser focused, if you will. They're like cross-examinations. You've got your documents all lined up. You know exactly what the 10 questions are that you're going to be asking more or less. There might be some follow-ups, but it's, it's very laser focused. 
Assessment interviews tend not to be that way. And so I think kind of setting up and setting the tone for this is to, is it's a good idea to put together a paragraph or so that you will provide to the intended interviewees beforehand to kind of not only set them at ease as to what this is about, but set the tone that this is going to be a conversational discussion about compliance and ethics, the culture of the organization, that you're going to be asking questions about training, you're going to be asking questions about communication, and the other aspects of a compliance program that would be viewed from their perspective, depending on where they are in the chain of command and what their role is. And it's certainly true that for some individuals that you'll be interviewing, you'll have some very specific things that you'll want to talk to them about. If you're talking to a business unit manager, then you're going to be wanting to talk to them about how they communicate and how they escalate issues when those issues come to their attention. But beyond some of these basic sort of role-based questions that you're naturally going to ask, a lot of it is sort of teasing out their perspective about big picture issues, about tone from the top, from their perspective, about how individuals in the field react to the messages coming from the top of the organization, about their perception of misconduct and their perception of issues like retaliation. So the kind of questions you're going to ask are going to be a little bit more open-ended, and you're going to want to really listen to people more than look for very specific factual answers as you would in an investigatory interview. The other thing that you're going to want to do is explain what this process is. What I've found is that when you tell interview subjects that the goal of the organization is to measure and test the effectiveness of the ethics and compliance program at the organization, that is very helpful because people have opinions about this as you as they have opinions about everything. And you will often get some very fruitful discussions developing out of, again, some of these broader questions or broader statements that typically you wouldn't have in, in a more specific interview process. One last tip on setting the proper tone, too, is different from the investigatory interview, you might want to consider including in the statement, the preparation statement that you send out to potential interviewees, that the team is not planning to specifically name interviewees in the final product, whether that's a written report or an oral report, but that they're looking for aggregate opinions. Why that's important, I found is that in many of these circumstances, people have an impression of something that's going on either regarding reporting or retaliation or a particular issue, and they're going to be more comfortable being forthcoming if they feel that their statements aren't going to be attributed directly to them personally. So depending on how you scope this out and sort of what your objectives are, you may want to include in the paragraph or two that you send around to potential interviewees the notion that they're not going to be specifically quoted in any final product here and that you're looking for uh, opinions that are sort of unvarnished. That might help. And again, there are different ways to go about this. Uh, some organizations wouldn't prefer to do that, but it's something to consider. And I've seen it work effectively, particularly in organizations where there was some concern based on anonymous reports or other reporting that had gone on. They felt that they wanted to create an environment during the assessment process where people felt that they could be anonymous as well. These are just a few ideas for planning the interview process during an assessment. We'll have some follow-up 
episodes down the road here where we talk a little bit more specifically about how you actually conduct some of these interviews. But I think as you're planning out your process, these are some good points to keep in mind. If you have a question you want answered on the podcast, be sure to submit it on compliancebeat.com. Now here's the upshot. The upshot this week is when you're planning the interview process during your assessment project, spend some time considering the data and documentation that you are going to review beforehand because that will probably inform who you are going to interview. Also spend some time ensuring that you get a broad, good sample of interviewees from the top to the bottom of the organization. And then lastly, set the right tone. Inform the interviewees about your project goals because that will sometimes free them up to give you the information that you really need. Today, we have three questions with Kathleen Grilly. Kathleen is the General Counsel of the United States Sentencing Commission. She's been at the commission since 2003 and has played an instrumental role in the drafting of key commission publications, including the commission's 2006 report to Congress, on the impact of the Booker decision on federal sentencing guidelines and its comprehensive 2011 report to Congress on mandatory minimum penalties. In addition, she's co-chaired the Commission's Symposium on Economic Crime in 2013 and a Symposium on Alternatives to Incarceration in 2008. She's conducted numerous training events on white-collar crime and the organizational sentencing guidelines, and she speaks frequently on these topics, including with me in Chicago at SCCE CEI just a few weeks ago. Along with all of this, and importantly for our audience, she's also the compliance officer of a very small organization. The commission, despite being a federal agency, has less than 100 employees. So she feels your pain if you happen to be a dual hat or a compliance officer for a smaller organization. Prior to joining the commission in 2003, Kathleen served as staff counsel at the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit in Richmond, Virginia, and she previously worked in private practice as an assistant federal public defender in Miami, Florida. Welcome, Kathleen. Thanks, Eric. Can you talk to us a little bit about your career journey? How did you end up in your current role? Sure. Well, let me start off with how I ended up at the commission, because how I got in to become the general counsel is sort of all tied in with that history. I practiced in South Florida for 16 years, both as a federal defender and then in private practice doing civil and criminal litigation for about 16 years when my husband got a transfer to the D.C. area. So I packed up with him and moved up to D.C. and basically started looking for a job. And I got the job down at the Fourth Circuit Staff Counsel's Office. But in the interim, my husband happened to run across the posting for a job for Assistant General Counsel at the United States Sentencing Commission. And one of the preferred qualifications for that posting was that the person have prior criminal defense experience. I have to tell you, that's the first and only time that that has opened a door for me, but I interviewed for the job and I got the job as Assistant General Counsel and started in November 2003. I was an AGC here for about four years where I got promoted to deputy. And for the next six years, I was basically the right hand of the then general counsel, Ken Cohen, who was promoted to be the head of the agency in June of 2013, after which he promoted me to be his general counsel. And, and as a, a little, a, a small follow-up, so a 1.5 qu- question, if you will, uh, <laughs> had you, did you have any idea when you were practicing in South Florida or, or later when you came up to D.C. that you would have an interface with compliance and ethics? 
Absolutely not. My only experience with, frankly, compliance and ethics came back when I was in South Florida at the defender's office where we had an individual defendant, four of them actually, who were indicted and their organization that they owned was also indicted along with them. And I remember doing some research about whether we could get appointed counsel for the organization and the answer to that question was a resounding no. So I actually, before came to the commission, had no experience with Chapter 8 didn't know anything about the wonderful history about compliance and ethics and the commission's role in that until I got here and started working here. And if you could go back in time before you assumed your current role and tell yourself one piece of advice, what would that one thing be? I think in my current role, they're, they're being in charge of sort of compliance and ethics for the agency and being the general counsel required different skill sets than I necessarily expected. And so I would talk to myself a lot about how I could improve skill sets that I need more in the current role than I did when maybe I was taking a subordinate role to the general counsel. Yeah. And, and that's a, I think that's a common refrain we hear from compliance officers that are dual hats is uh, trying to figure out how you build that uh, division between your role as the uh, advocate for the organization, the, the lawyer for the organization, and then the, the kind of different responsibilities you have as a compliance officer. Right. I would agree with that. I think it is very, very challenging. And now, if you could peer into your crystal ball just a little bit, uh, what uh, one or two trends in compliance and ethics do you see as being very important over the next couple of years? Well, I have to say that one one trend or one concern that I've heard echoed a little bit since the Yates memo on uh, corporate prosecutions and their intent to focus on individual defendants and and sort of how the compliance and ethics community has responded to that and has raised concerns for them. I hope that trend or those concerns don't bear out. I'm going to approach this from the perspective of somebody who's a criminal defense attorney and just say that I believe that just because you're in a role as a compliance and ethics officer for an organization who has bad actors who get in some kind of trouble, does not necessarily automatically open up open up the officer, the compliance and ethics officer to criminal prosecution. I think in most instances, and I talked about this a little in Chicago, but I think in most instances, when you're being prosecuted for a crime, the government is going to have to prove that you had some kind of criminal intent. There's, you know, there are strict liability crimes, but even that is going to have to require that the compliance and ethics officer be complicit in the crime. And I just don't, I don't, I, I think that's going to be difficult to prove in the ordinary instance if they're not a bad actor. They just, you know, didn't catch something. So I hope that I'm right about that. Now, our statistics, you know, our, our organizational statistics at the commission basically show that in a little over half of the cases now, when the government indicts and convicts an organization, at least one individual co-defendant is indicted along with the organization. So I really don't believe that Sally Yates' announcement that they're going to prosecute individual offenders necessarily um, means that they're going to do something differently than they've been doing. And so I hope that, you know, my beliefs on that are, are going to bear out over time. Um, the other thing that I am very excited to see, and I hope that this also bears out over time, is the, the globalization or the spread of compliance and ethics and, and what we're seeing, you know, moving into the UK, et cetera. You know, I hope to see that nations around the world sort of adopt the standards that we have adopted in the United States because, you know, so much of what we do these days 
crosses over borders and crosses into countries. And, you know, we bring in products from China and, you know, around the world. And so we, we want to see the sort of the norms that we've established in the United States for such things bear out over those lines. And so I hope that 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 trend that we've been seeing where more people are adopting, you know, these sort of standards like we have in the organizational guidelines. Um, I hope that continues. No, I think those are, are two salient points. Uh, we, I think we, we've seen both of them at work. And I hope you're right about the first point that we don't see more compliance officers finding themselves having to hire criminal defense attorneys. But also, I, I do hope that we see changes that continue overseas because that just makes the job for a compliance officer that has a global writ that much easier. Well, Kathleen, I I can't thank you enough for taking some time today to answer our three questions. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.